familiar, many of you, with those famous phrases. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and so forth and so on. All of those statements are meant to tell us something about who Jesus is. There are a lot of people in our context who know what Jesus did, right? It's a very, very familiar phrase to hear people say, Jesus died for my sins. Right? That just gets thrown around very uh, haphazardly around here. But there are far less people who would declare to know who Jesus truly is. The purpose of this series is to give us an eyeful of Jesus because it's seeing and savoring him that has a transforming effect on our hearts. It's not just about what he's done. It's about who he is. It's about Jesus' person and work. Everyone seems to have their own take on who Jesus is, right? Some people believe that Jesus is a good teacher. Some people believe that he was a pithy philosopher putting together fortune cookie statements on a hillside for the masses. Some believe that he was a good person, but certainly not God. Some believe he was a prophet. Some believe he's a crazy man, including his family at one point, if you read the gospel accounts. Even those who confess to believe that Jesus is the son of God who takes away the sins of the world will still try to soften Jesus or uh, shape Jesus, conform him into their own image. And so the question that we're really after in this series is this. Who does Jesus say that he is? Who is Jesus according to Jesus? And as I mentioned for a couple weeks now, John records his entire gospel account in order to give us an answer to that question. He actually tells us point blank why he's recording the words that we'll take a look at this very morning. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, including John chapter 8, where we're going this morning, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That if you come in this morning and you're not fully sure of who Jesus is, the book of John is a fantastic place to camp out. That's where we're going to camp out as a church for the next several weeks as we continue to unearth and expound uh, these I am statements of Jesus, each one functioning as a facet in this multifaceted jewel, you could say. Each statement telling us something about who Jesus is and what that means for us. And so this morning, we have the privilege of taking a look at Jesus' famous declaration, I am the light of the world. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to John chapter 8 will primarily be in verses 12 through 14 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, you have a translation that's difficult to follow, to understand, you can take that Bible as the church's gift to you for free. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll jump in and we'll go ahead and get to work. God, there is a lot at stake this morning. I thought that one of the most offensive line in the sand declarations that we would encounter in this series was that statement that we looked at last week where you made that declaration that we must eat your flesh and drink your blood and what that means. But that is not true. This is actually one of the most offensive passages in terms of your making a clear declaration of who you are and the implications of what that means for us in our lives. If you are the light of the world, you are declaring that the world is dark and that we need light. And so I pray that we would see you for who you are this morning, that you would light up our souls, Christian and non-Christian alike. Uh, that you would shine in our hearts 
to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ and the uh, glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus this morning. Would you do that? Would you shine into our darkness this morning with great power? We lift these things in up in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, as we pick up the story this morning in John chapter 8, it's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, one of, one of the uh, many Jewish celebrations. This was a, a celebration meant to commemorate Israel's dependence upon God as they wandered in the wilderness. Many of you uh, may be familiar with that story. As they were brought out of Egyptian enslavement, they were uh, led by a cloud during the daytime when the sun would blaze down upon them, and they were led by a pillar of fire at night as God carried them out of enslavement to Egypt. On the final evening of this Feast of Tabernacles meant to commemorate Israel's dependence upon God in the wilderness, the temple officials would would light four lamps in the temple court. So you can picture these, these four giant lamps that were lit. And on top of that, people would light torches as they celebrated their way through the night. The light from those lamps and torches were so bright that they would light up the entire city. And so you can just picture this city in the darkness of night lit up like a Christmas tree. That's the picture. For the Jews, it would have inevitably taken them back to to the time of their ancestors in the wilderness, to those wanderings in the desert, the presence of God in the pillar of fire that, that did in fact lead them through the Egyptian desert in the darkest hours of night. It's in that context that we're told, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. Yet another undeniable declaration of deity For a first century Hebrew, the imagery of light would have brought up a number of connecting points in the scriptures. Not just the pillar of fire that led them out of Egyptian enslavement, but also going all the way back to creation, God said, let there be what? Light. And with that declaration, he pushed back the darkness, the void, and filled the world with life. David in Psalm 27 declares these famous words, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? David declares God to be his light, his hope. Light is associated with God. It's associated with his work of creation and his work of rescue, of redemption. The prophet Isaiah, in declaring the coming of the Messiah, says this very famous Christmas verse. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah is declaring that the coming Messiah would be a light entering into the darkness. If you go back to the first chapter of John's gospel account, John tells us this. He says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. John's talking about Jesus there. And now, here in John chapter chapter 8, Jesus declares all of these pictures of light in the Bible to ultimately be about him. Jesus is saying, that's me. He's declaring himself to be the hope of salvation using this light metaphor. But he's not just declaring something about himself. He's also declaring something about us, about the world in which we live. Through this same light metaphor, Jesus is saying the world is a dark place. We all know that. Just turn on the news for 15 seconds, right? The, The world's broken. And let's not kid ourselves, it's not just out there, though it's really easy to do that thing where you're like, man, if, if everybody you know, outside of myself would, would get their stuff together, then this world might shine a little brighter. No, if we're honest, we, we've all had some pretty dark thoughts run through our minds at times. 
times. We've all had some, some pretty dark emotions run through our hearts at times. If we had a matinee after lunch to get to, uh, today and the film of choice was the last 48 hours of your life, who would stay to watch that, right? Most of us would cringe at the thought of what might come up on that screen. From the, the biggest marital blow-up to that, that small judgmental thought that you had as you passed that person in the aisle at Target. Jesus is saying, this world is dark. And he's declaring that it's either him or darkness. According to Jesus, those are the only two options. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, here's the the strange thing about the human heart. We've talked about this before as a church. In one sense, man hates the dark. I'm going to out my wife this morning. When, When we shut down the house at night, she does that thing where she gets really upset at me if... I turn off the light in the room that we're in before turning off a light in the room that we're going to, right? Some of you, some of you do that, right? You know what that's like. Some of you check your, your bed at night to make sure that you're the only living thing in your bedroom before you go to bed, even if you have six inches of space and nothing more between the bottom of your bed frame and, and the floor. You still look to make sure that there's not, you know, some, some flat-bodied wildebeest under your bed lurking below. Like, we, we all have this, this thing that our minds do, we're afraid of, of the dark in some sense. In some sense, we, we hate the dark. There's something about light that subdues our fears. Yet in another sense, man loves the darkness. Man sees light as harsh and exposing, like a kid when your mom would wake you up to get out of bed for school when you were younger. In the same way that the flipping on of a light switch can be painful and harsh, the light of God in the midst of the darkness of sin can be painful can be exposing, can be harsh, which is why going back to that passage in John chapter 1, we're told that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, and he was uh, in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They did not receive the light. Or or even more explicitly, in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus only a few verses Uh, past that famous John 3.16 declaration, Jesus says this to Nicodemus. He says, the light has come into the world. He's talking about himself there. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Coming back to this morning's passage, it's exactly why the Pharisees respond the way they do. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. All right, welcome to the land of the awkward. Jesus is teaching in the temple, and the Pharisees call him a liar. It would be like if one of you guys yelled out in the middle of my sermon, blasphemer, instrument of the evil one, right? That would be socially awkward, right? There would be a bunch of heavens to Betsy's, you know, that would be going on amongst the, the, the congregation. We'd have to walkie-talkie one of the church bouncers. It wouldn't go good for anybody, right? That's socially awkward. This is a socially awkward, emotionally charged moment here. It's like that moment when mom or dad would flip on that light switch at 6 a.m. If you find the light to be harsh, to be offensive, you say ugly things when you encounter the light. The question that begs to be answered is this. Why are the Pharisees so offended by Jesus' declaration? What's so bothersome about it? Well, if you take that light imagery, when Jesus entered into human history, people began to see. They began to see their evil thoughts, their evil affections, 
their evil deeds exposed, and they didn't like it. Both religious and irreligious people alike. The irreligious didn't like coming face-to-face with the capital T, truth. They wanted to create their own ideas of truth. They wanted to call the shots, to live life by their own set of rules. Like our first parents in the garden, the fickle human heart desires a life of self-determination, a life of judicial autonomy, to be a part of a story in which we don't have to submit to divine authority, but rather get to call the shots for ourselves. And Jesus shows up on the scene and turns that kind of thinking upside down on its head. And as for the religious, the religious wanted to believe that they could do enough good to cause God to look upon them favorably. They wanted to believe that they could brighten up their own darkness through good works. Welcome to the culturally Christian South. That game plan worked as long as the religious elite could compare themselves to all the sinners around them. But all of a sudden, when Jesus comes along in all of his perfection, in all of his sinlessness, they hate him. He crushes their standard of goodness. He reveals their inability to earn God's love. And so it's either bow down or retaliate. Those are the two options. And they choose to retaliate. They seek to to try to use Jesus' words against him. Jesus had said back in John chapter 5, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And yet in John chapter 8, Jesus has just declared himself to be the light of the world. He's bearing witness about himself. And so the Pharisees respond, Jesus, you said, you said that, that if you alone bear witness about yourself, your testimony is not true. So there you go. You're contradicting yourself question is, is is Jesus contradicting himself? The Pharisees seem to think so, Um, and they're hoping they're right because he's just declared himself to be the light of the world, and they don't see anything radiant when they look at him. It's a big problem they have on their hands if he's right. What they fail to understand is that Jesus is not alone in bearing witness about himself at all. He's declaring himself to be divine, God the Son, one with the Father. And what that means is that his testimony and the Father's testimony are one and the same. He says it plain as day, if you look down at verses 17 and 18, he says, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. There you go. There's your two, Jesus says. The Pharisees don't like what Jesus is saying, though. And and so they, they choose to get into an argument based on logic and semantics, rather than grab hold of the only light that can lead them out of the darkened dungeon of sin and death. John Piper says it this way. He says, The light of Christ is not an inference from premises. It is the brightness of God shining on the retina of the human soul. You know it's there not because you conclude it from an argument, but because you see it with the eyes of your heart. The Pharisees fail to see the brightness of God right in front of their faces. The eyes of their hearts are blind. The retinas of their human souls are not working. And so verse 14, Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. The declaration of divinity here cannot be any clearer. Jesus is implying I came from God and I'm going back to God. That gives me all the authority that I need to declare myself to be the light of the world. He's pointing back to Genesis 1, and he's pointing forward to Revelation 22 at the same time. He's declaring that all of redemptive history points to him. 
He's saying, I came from God. I'm eternal. I was around long before that manger scene in Bethlehem. I was around before the foundations of the world. Eternal, timeless, self-existent, self-sustaining, eternal God of the universe. The one who was part of that let there be light stuff in the beginning. Pushing back the darkness with his authoritative, creative words. And not only does he declare to have come from God. He says, I'm, I'm going back to God. I'm going to suffer and die in the place of sinners. You're going to crucify me. It's exactly what happened, right? The light entered the darkness and the darkness crucified the light. It's what martyrdom is all about. When beacons of light enter into the darkness, the darkness hates the light and must do away with it. Jesus says, you're going to crucify me because you're offended by the true light. But I'm going to rise from the grave. I'm going to slay the darkness. I'm going to slay Satan, sin, and death. And I'm going to ascend to the right hand of the Father from whom I came to bring light into this darkened world. And ultimately, there's coming a day where there will not be a need for sun or moon because I'm going to light up the new heaven and earth like the 4th of July. Revelation 21, 23 says it this way. And the city, the new Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, I'm the eternal light who illuminates the darkness. That's me. I was shining long before you came into existence, and there will never come a day in which I will cease to shine. But the Pharisees are blind. They don't see Jesus for who he really is. Again, the retinas of their human souls are, are not working. And Jesus does not go easy on them here. There's a lot of it at stake with respect to this failure to believe. Skipping down to verse 19. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. In other words, Jesus is saying, my father and I are so united. That's good Trinitarian theology. We're so united that to know him is to know me. To love him is to love me. Therefore, because you don't know me, you don't know the father. What an incredibly offensive thing to say to a bunch of Pharisees, right? A crowd educated in the Old Testament who professed to know God better than anyone or anything on planet Earth. According to Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. If you don't love Jesus, you don't love God. That's incredibly offensive. If you come in this morning and you go, I love God, but I'm not sure about this Jesus thing, you gotta wrestle with these words that come out of the mouth of Jesus himself. He says, if you don't know and love me, you don't know and love God, again, going back to the C.S. Lewis quote that we've been talking about for weeks now, you, you can't deny that Jesus is God and still call him a good teacher. He doesn't give space for that. He declares himself to be divine. He declares that if you don't know and love him, you don't know and love God. If he's not divine, then he's either a liar or a crazy person. And he goes on to add offense on top of offense. Looking down at verse 24, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That if you don't believe that I am the light of the world, God entering into the darkness to rescue sinners, you will die in your sins. Again, Jesus is declaring that it's either him or darkness. It's either him or eternal separation from God in the darkened dungeon of sin and death forever. These kind of words, John chapter 8, demand a response. There is no casual spectator with a passage like this. There's just not. 
The question for us this morning is the same question that we've wrestled with as a church for three weeks now, which is this. It's the same question Jesus asked Martha in John chapter 11 with the story of Lazarus' resurrection. Do you believe this? Do you believe that there is no hiding from God, that you can't play a game of cosmic hide-and-go-seek with the God of the universe, that he sees everything, that he sees behind every rock in in the cosmos that we might try to hide behind? David says it this way in Psalm chapter 139, verses 11 and 12. He says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, God. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. He sees everything. And listen, Jesus is not any less radiant because we choose the darkness. Our response to him doesn't change who he is. But according to Jesus, our response to him has everything to do with whether or not we will die in our sins. This is a big deal. If you're not a Christian, who do you say that he is? He doesn't doesn't give you the option of calling him nothing more than a good teacher. He doesn't give space for that. He declares himself to be divinely one with God the Father. He declares that unless you believe in him, you will die in your sins. If he is who he says he is, let me ask you this. If you're not a Christian, what is it that's keeping you from believing? What is it that's keeping you from coming to him? Is it the the reality that you'll have to die to a life of self-determination, a life of judicial autonomy? that you'll have to submit to Jesus as king rather than function as your own sovereign? Or perhaps it's the idea of having to declare that you can't brighten up your own darkness with good works, acknowledging that Jesus crushes your standard of goodness, revealing your inability to earn God's love. Again, this is a a massive deal that we're talking about here. Listen to me, if Jesus is right about who he says that he is and you do what the Pharisees did, Namely, fail to receive him, you will die in your sins. But if you turn to him and believe that he is who he says he is, the eternal son of God who entered into the darkened slums of human history, who lived the life that you and I could never live, a perfect sinless life, who died the death that you and I deserve to die, who rose from the grave conquering the darkness, the darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death on our behalf, who will return to light up the new heaven and earth for eternity. If you turn to him and believe, you will not die in your sins. In the words of the Apostle Paul, God will deliver you from the domain of darkness and transfer you to the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. And so I'm begging you this morning, if you're not a Christian, to turn to Jesus, to believe, to tell somebody about that. And if you are a Christian, listen to me, man. It is time to do a little celebrating around here, okay? You're a walking miracle. You realize that? The only difference between you and the Pharisees in John chapter 8 is that God performed a miracle. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's unbelievable. You had a Jericho Road experience. Just like the blind man on the road to Jericho in Luke chapter 18, Jesus' brightness shined on the retina of your human soul, and you went from blind, disheveled, impoverished, outcast, groping in the darkness for something to hope in to a child of God with eyes to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ. That's unbelievable that we who profess to know and love and follow Jesus should be all declaring 
with great joy this morning. I, I couldn't see. I was groping for, for something to hope in. And everything left me wanting. But then Jesus, like, he opened my eyes. He gave me eyes to see. And now everything looks different in the light of Christ. The way we look at creation, the way we look at fellow image bearers of God, the way we even look at sorrow and suffering, right? He lights up both the beautiful and the broken. He gives us eyes to see his power, wisdom, and love in all circumstances so that we can sing it and mean it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, was blind, but now I see. Just like a blind man, I wandered along. Worries and fears I claimed for my own. Then like the blind man that God gave back his sight. Praise the Lord. I saw the light. And just to be clear, we've been talking about it for weeks now. The most glorious gift of the gospel is not that we're rescued from darkness. It's that we're rescued to Jesus, the light. Again, going back to verse 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have, will obtain the light of life. Going back to the gospel, the beauty of the gospel is not that we get Jesus to rescue us from this, that, or the other. It's not that we get him to give us this, that, or the other. The beauty of the gospel is that we get Jesus, that those who follow him will have the light of life. That's Jesus Christ himself. You ever been in a relationship with a person that you could confidently declare, that person lights up my world? Maybe it's a, a friend, friendship that you have that brings you great joy. Maybe it's your, your spouse that causes you to glow. Maybe it's your children who light up your world with their tiny antics. Maybe it's a niece or a nephew or a grandbaby. I don't know what that is for you, but what Jesus is saying here is that he has the ability to do just that. That those who truly know and love him know exactly what that's like. Right? He makes your heart happy. He lights up your world. Even in the darkest nights of the soul, he has the ability to do that. That he is the gift of the gospel. That to gain him is to gain the greatest source of light that the world has ever known. And so if you're a Christian this morning, I invite you to join me in doing a little bit of celebrating as we continue on in this service. That you've been given eyes to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ. What a gift of God's grace. And here's another thing for the Christians in the room. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he truly is the light of the world, who has come to breathe life into our darkened hearts and souls and stories, then a life lived in the darkened shadows of secrecy is truly a life of bondage. It really is. There are a lot of people in, in our context who are living a life of bondage based on what Jesus says this morning. That if your life is one big game of hide and go seek with everyone around you, then you're not free. As one commentator I read this week put it, Jesus already outed you. And so the gospel declares, you get that, right? Jesus already outed you. This senselessness of pretending like we don't struggle with sin, 
this senselessness of pretending like, like we don't deal with worry and anxiety and trying to sweep that under some, some rug of religiosity, Jesus already outed you. You're a broken mess, and so am I. The gospel declares that we are broken and we cannot fix ourselves. It's when we move toward the light that we experience true healing and freedom. It's when we embrace a life of confession, a life of honesty, a life of transparency, that we experience the crippling of the darkness in our lives. It's what John was talking about as he recorded these words, 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Listen to me, Jesus died for every one of your sins, past, present, and future. And that means that you can walk in the light. You don't have to hang out in, in the the darkened shadows of relational secrecy. You can know others and be known by others. And it won't crush you because Jesus was crushed for you. And here's the pretty amazing thing. As we see and savor Jesus Christ, the light of the world, and as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, he creates a derivative glow in every one of us. It's quite amazing. And it's a glow that he uses to, to draw more people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So that the light of Christ just keeps pushing back the darkness further and further and further. It's one of the beauties of being able to go to that, that retreat that, that I mentioned to you when I first came up onto this stage. To hear these stories of light pushing back the darkness globally. And, and every one of those pockets of light matters in the kingdom of God. And you're a part of that. You don't have to go into uh, an Amazonian tribe to matter in terms of the kingdom efforts, in terms of the building of Jesus' church. You don't have to go to the, the rolling hills of Ireland to be a part of something special. You're a part of something special right here. God is doing something right here, and he wants to do it in you and through you. As Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. And so do what you were designed and redeemed to do, shine. As we look at Jesus, as we see and savor him, we glow and God uses that in a way to draw more people to himself. In a moment, we're gonna shift into a time of reflection leading into communion. If you're a Christian, communion is for you. We take the bread here and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. As we prepare for that moment, and I really do believe that that is a special moment, it's really easy for us to kind of um, begin to, to see it as less special because we do it every week, but according to uh, the, the doctrine of the sacraments, Jesus is present by his spirit when we receive communion, every time we do it, and we proclaim his, his death until he returns according to the Apostle Paul. It's quite amazing. As we prepare for, for that moment, if you're not a Christian, again, I invite you to, to come to Jesus, to believe, to, to at least sit with the question of what do I, who do I believe that he is? Did I come in this morning believing that he's a good teacher, a philosopher, a prophet? What did you bring to the table? Because Jesus gives you three options. Call him a liar, call him a crazy man, or fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And I invite you to fall at his feet this morning in worship as Savior and King. 
And if you are a Christian, to, to do two things. To one, step toward the light in these coming moments. Whatever residual darkness is in your heart as it pertains to sin and unbelief, to bring that, to bring that to him this morning, to confess that, to move toward the light in that way, and at the same time, to celebrate what Jesus has done in performing the miracle of opening your eyes to see and savor the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What a miracle. Let's celebrate over the course of the next few minutes. Let's sing our way out of this place louder than we ever have.